Hi, I'm David Peña Guzman. And I'm Ellie Anderson. Welcome to Overthink. The podcast where two friends who are also professors put philosophy in dialogue with the everyday. Because big ideas are within everyone's reach. David, the fourth installment of the Matrix movies has recently come out. Yes. Okay, you make it sound like you're a Matrix fan. I don't even think you like the Matrix, do you? What? Okay, so I haven't seen the fourth Matrix, but I was very into the Matrix when um, it came out, one through three. Oh, and okay, I stand corrected. So, yeah, no, I did really like them. And I have to say the first one stands the test of time pretty well, in a way that the second one and the third one that are mostly fancy explosions and special mm. effects do not. Okay. I haven't seen the second and third one, to be honest. I Philosophers love The Matrix because it's it's really known as one of the most philosophical films. It plays on the difference between reality and illusion, waking and dreaming. Uh, there are political philosophy resonances to it and ethical ones. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I saw it. I kind of forgot it. Well, you know, the first time that I felt like I finally aged out of my students' age group is when I asked my students if they had seen The Matrix, and not a single one of them said yes. Yeah, well, even The, the Matrix is even a little bit out of my age range. Ew, I'm, Ellie, I'm only stop. a couple years younger than you, but yeah, I feel like it wasn't really part of the zeitgeist. I mean, so the first one came out in... Like 2000, 2001, something like this? 1999. Oh, okay, I was a year yeah. or two late. I was 10. You were 10. <laughs> in any case, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think maybe The Matrix 4's release will cr- spark interest among young people again, because The Matrix 3 came out only in 2003. So Matrix 1, 2, and 3 came back out to within back, the span yes. of a few years. And then The Matrix 4 has taken a lot longer to come out. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that is interesting about The Matrix is that a primary philosopher who inspired the concepts from it, the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, asserted that the creators of The Matrix had fundamentally misunderstood yes. his views, which is such a burn because they even <laughs> paid homage to him in the movie that you can see the the cover of his book, Simulacra and Simulation, in The Matrix. And, and didn't the director make all of the cast members read it? I heard that before, that the people who played various characters like uh, Keanu Reeves had to read this philosophy book about (laughs) the virtual versus the real versus the hyper real and uh, had to develop I guess what the directors considered an appropriate mastery of the text in order to play the characters in the movie and you're right there is a scene in the first Matrix where the main character Neo is given a book that contains an important object inside and the book is Simulacra and Simulation. But that's hilarious that you suggested that the creators made the cast show a mastery of the text because according to Baudrillard himself, nobody working on this movie mastered the text. Not even the directors. No. I mean, in fact, he (laughs) said in an interview that The Matrix is exactly the kind of film that The Matrix would make Uh, about The Matrix. (laughs) Yes. So I've, I've read that interview. And he also makes the claim that part of the problem with The Matrix is that it operates with a relatively simplistic dichotomy between the real and the virtual. 
Because in the Matrix, you're either inside the Matrix or you're entirely outside. The two don't really interact in any complicated way. Whereas Baudrillard, who is reflecting upon the rise of the digital and the virtual in the late 20th century, wants to make the argument that, in fact, the line between those two has collapsed for postmodern subjects. So it's exactly in the opposite direction. Yeah. No, there seem to be a couple of problems with it for Baudrillard. One is that in making the distinction between the real and the virtual seem clearer than it is in the present day, the Matrix ends up actually being closer to platonic philosophy than it is to Baudrillard's own philosophy because because the Matrix actually shows something more like Plato's cave where people are stuck in a cave thinking that projections of shadows on the walls are real Mm -hmm. when actually there's an entire real world outside. And that's pretty different from what Baudrillard's doing. And then the second thing is that He's also really concerned with the way the Matrix itself is about a monopolistic superpower and resisting that monopolistic superpower. But by virtue of being part of the international Hollywood juggernaut of global capitalism, (laughs) the Matrix is not a symbol of resistance. It's a symbol of the way that an imaginary resistance is built into Into the the capitalist system of monopolistic superpowers themselves. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, there has been a number of books written about this from a philosophical perspective. And when I was young, one of the books that I read is a book called The Matrix and Philosophy. But I remember being an 18, 19-year-old kid reading this book and being like, The Matrix is the philosophical movie. But it's very much a boy (laughs) magnet, definitely. Yeah, and I think aside from some of the problems with The Matrix itself, one thing that's interesting here is that The Matrix is a great example of philosophy inspiring science fiction, even if it inspired it badly, according to the philosopher who (laughs) did the inspiring. (laughs) And, but the creators of The Matrix are far from the only creators of science fiction who've been inspired by philosophical works. So one question for us today it might be, can the inspiration also go the other way? How can science fiction help inspire philosophy? Today, we are talking about science fiction. How have developments in science and technology given rise to the literary genre of science fiction? How does science fiction change our relationship to the present by helping us imagine alternative futures? We consult with philosopher Helen DeCruz about why science fiction might prompt readers to ponder big ideas even more than philosophy itself does. The term science fiction was coined by Hugo Gernsback, fabulous name, (laughs) who had a magazine called Amazing Stories. And this magazine reprinted material by people like H.G. Wells, Edgar Allan Poe, and Jules Verne. But Gernsback actually referred to this fiction initially as scientifiction. Apparently, it didn't really catch on. (laughs) So much better than science fiction, actually. I don't know. I mean, I I wonder whether it was because this didn't catch on that he ended up using the term science fiction. Because (laughs) after his Amazing Stories magazine, he had a different magazine, which launched in 1929, called Science Wonder Stories. And it was Science Wonder Stories that actually used the term science fiction for the first time. Oh, that's interesting. I love finding out what other time periods 
call things for which we now have settled terms. But even though a lot of historical accounts trace the origins of science fiction to the early 20th century, there are definitely yeah. some important precursors that predate this time period. For instance, uh, Shelley's Frankenstein could be described as the first work of science fiction as such, since it deals okay. with you know a scientific experiment gone awry yeah, yeah. and the social and That's, ethical. That seems pretty. Yeah, the, the implications of that. Yeah, that seems like a pretty clear case of science fiction avant la lettre. Yeah, avant la lettre. So 19th century before the term science fiction was coined. Yeah, um, so I think it's important also to recognize that these developments in the early 20th century build upon something that was already there in the air. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and I also think there's something specific about the 20th century that provides the conditions for the making explicit mm, of mm-hmm science fiction, where we're really moving from these precursors you're discussing, David, to science fiction blowing up as a genre. Because the advancements that we get in science and technology in the late 19th century and early 20th century paved the way for what you would rather call scientific fiction. Because <laughs> uh, we get the Industrial Revolution, which hugely accelerates our technological progress. And you can see this sense of acceleration making its way into fiction through people like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells with, say, the time machine, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And we could even identify ways in which changes in science and technology led not only to the acceleration of science fiction as a genre, but to changes in sci-fi content over time. Because what sci-fi does Mm -hmm, is it mm -hmm. tries to reflect on the scientific and technological present. So I'm here thinking, for instance, about the fact that the rise of the computer age and cybernetics in the 1940s and 1950s led to sci-fi focusing more, for instance, on robots, on questions about the difference between the human and the machine. So think about the Android stream of electric sheep, which inspired not just Blade Runner, but also the movie iRobot with Will Smith. Um, mm, I liked that one. That was a fun one. I, I love Blade Runner and the the recent remake. Oh, of I'm that- an iRobot. Oh, oh, okay. Controversial take here. I like iRobot better than Blade Runner. I'm not willing to defend that from an aesthetic point of view. I'm just saying like I actually enjoyed iRobot more than. Blade okay, well, that's fine. As long as you clarify that it's not because it's actually better, but maybe just like more enjoyable and fun. It to might watch. be. I would. Ah! I might be willing to defend that. I would just need to think about it more. <laughs> okay, so let's save that for another <laughs> time. Guess I am not having it. Um, um, but, you know, just as the rise of cybernetics leads to a particular kind of sci-fi writing, so too the space race leads to its own kind of sci-fi stories mm. focusing on space technology, on space exploration. You know, the movie uh, Dune just came out. And so there's been mm-hmm. a resurgence of interest in in that story, but originally came out in 1965 when, as a book, yeah, yeah. A, as a book, when the space race was front and center in terms of social problems and social questions. So there's a clear correspondence here. And it's really interesting too, with the case of Dune, I haven't read the book, but I have seen the movie. Same. And I, I think, yeah. And, and I think that the way that Dune is made in the present day reflects even more than the space race theme, the themes of colonialism, racism, Islamophobia that feel really salient to contemporary Americans. Because one of the really interesting things I think about science fiction is how it reflects 
as you said, David, concerns of the current age. And when we see things like remakes of different books or films that are sci-fi in nature, how do those change over time depending on the preoccupations that come to the Mm -hmm. fore in different periods? Like Dune now versus 1965 Dune versus David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, or the time machine in the early 20th century versus, you know, Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of movies about time travel that just look very different than the time machine. I was not a fan of Interstellar or Inception on this point, but... Well, yeah. (laughs) Or Tenet. Oh, God, I hated Tenet. I really disliked Tenet as well. And I (laughs) I really hated Interstellar, like, with the passion of a thousand suns. Um, That was the one about the aliens that that have, like, a different sense of time, right? No, that's Arrival, and that was a good movie. Oh, Arrival. I love that. Oh, sorry. I... I said Interstellar. Yeah, no, I also didn't even like Arrival. Yeah, but you liked iRobot, so your credibility is at (laughs) negative five, whatever that metric is. Um, It was genuinely good, and Will Smith's a really good You put iRobot over Blade Runner, like, enough. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Arrival was not terrible. It It was very, very interesting. But I did have issues with the way that they depicted time in that film. I think it it intended to be more revolutionary in its depiction of time than it actually was. And I thought that there were some logical inconsistencies there. But I think, you know, in general, it's really cool to see philosophical concerns like temporality appear in science mm-hmm. fiction, as well as seeing how science fiction trades on emerging technologies as inspiration for its fictional stories. And one thing that I think is also really interesting is that the Influence can go the other way, too. Science fiction can influence philosophy, which we'll talk about a little bit later with Helen DeCruz, but it can also influence real-world technology. So I found this 2018 study showing that researchers on human-computer interaction often use science fiction as inspiration. And a couple of examples of the way that science fiction has led, either directly or just through the cultural ether, to technological innovations are, one, cell phones. Mm, In Star Trek, Dick Tracy used a watch to communicate remotely with people. Um, And then also video conferencing in 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I have to say, and you're going to judge me more for my movie (laughs) taste on this, David, because closer to home for me than 2001, A Space Odyssey is the wonderful Disney Channel original movie from the early 2000s, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century, where she lives on a space station and they have a hologram teacher zoom in, (laughs) if you will, (laughs) in a way that very much prefigures Zoom conferencing technology and the way that we often educate each other in this post-2020 era. I always tell my students, look, I am the teacher of the future and you're just lucky to have me zoom in. (laughs) Um, So I haven't seen that particular movie, Xenon, what is it, Girl of the 21st 21st Century? century. Oh, oh, you gotta watch it. The style (laughs) is like what Gen Z is wearing nowadays, just for the record. Okay, maybe we could throw in fashion into the mix as well today. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I think the point that you're making is really good because there is this flow of influence from science to science fiction, but then also the other way around. And I think this has to do with the fact that science and science fiction share a speculative orientation. They speculate about Mm -hmm, what is mm -hmm. possible, about what could be, and then they try to make it real. Scientists, of course, do this by experiment, whereas authors of science fiction do it through writing. And 
I really like in in thinking about this speculative orientation, the definition of science fiction that we get from Robert Heinlein, who defines science fiction as follows. Realistic speculation about possible future events based solidly Mm. on adequate knowledge of the real world, past and present, and on a thorough understanding of the nature and significance of the scientific method. Wow. And so for Heinlein, there is a speculation about the future that is rooted in an adequate knowledge of the present and an understanding of maybe the cultural and epistemological significance of of doing science. And I also really like that he emphasizes it's being rooted in a thorough understanding of the scientific method, because one of my problems with a lot of science fiction is that they have really bad logic and methods to them. They're either internally inconsistent, which was how I felt about the movie Arrival, or they just kind of defy the logic of what we know about the world uh, scientifically. Yeah, and I think that's a point that's worth underlining, which is that the imagination that is the engine for science fiction stories is not an unfettered imagination that just conceives of scenarios ex nihilo without any consideration of of the scientific present. It's actually through a consideration of science and our scientific realities that it then builds a world Mm -hmm. to which we could draw a line from the here and now. Yeah. And one of the really interesting things about that, too, is that at least according to the science fiction author Ted Chang, who actually wrote the short story Arrival, which I haven't read the short story. I also haven't. haven't. And yeah, and but I have read a couple of other stories by Chang, and I think he's a really good and rigorously philosophical science fiction writer. Just internally inconsistent, Um, right? (laughs) Well, I just, I thought the movie Arrival had some internal inconsistencies, (laughs) but on a pretty high level, like it was way better than Inception and Tenet. But anyway, Ted Chang says that one of the things that distinguishes science fiction from fantasy or from magic is that not only is there this rooting in the present that you talked about, David, but there's also a way that science fiction opens us up to the implications of ideas in our present in ways that are potentially politically revolutionary. And this is very different from fantasy for Chang, because Chang says that fantasy essentially depends on one or more characters, usually the hero, having superpowers, having magical powers. And magic by nature is something that is accessible only to a few, because magic defies the laws of science, I would say. And also one thing that Chang says is that magic evokes wonder and amazement. So fantasy is an anti-egalitarian genre. Hmm. By nature, whereas science fiction isn't necessarily. Science fiction really opens us up to a wide variety of different political and social organizations. Yeah, my first intuition is to agree with that. But at the same time, I wonder how systematically that rule can be applied. Because on the one hand, in science fiction, you often have the category of the scientific genius who is working against Mm. his or her time. And that genius is not democratic or universally shared by all subjects in that world. As we've discussed in our genius episode. Yeah, and even if we go back to the Matrix, right, the central character is Neo, which is an anagram of the one, uh, right? Neo is Mm. the one who is selected to bring about the end of the Matrix. So there is definitely a messianic 
message at the heart of that Mm -hmm. science fiction story. And again, by definition, the Messiah is the selected one, Set off from the rest of the chosen. Um, Which you do see in Dune as well. I mean, I wonder whether the distinction then would be the chosen one is not chosen by virtue of special powers. Although genius might be an exception here, because I think you're right to well, point that Neil out, David, that genius also is something is. that's not... He's born the one. Yeah, but he's not born the one by virtue of a superpower. He just happens to be born the one. So in theory, he could be anybody, right? Yeah, I guess there is a randomness to the one because yeah. it's a glitch of the Matrix in that particular case. Anyways. Yeah, which is not the case in with Dune because he does have special powers. Hmm, maybe, maybe this distinction unravels. Interestingly... A lot of people who try and define science fiction say that it is notoriously yes. difficult to define. Well, I mean, so maybe we're getting at an essential challenge. Yeah, here. because how do you differentiate it, say, from fantasy, or how do you differentiate it just from fiction that happens to feature a scientific component? Another question might be, how do we distinguish science fiction from philosophical thought experiments, too? Because philosophy makes up stories all the time to help us sort of flex our imaginations. Are these essentially different from science fiction stories or not? Well, to help us think about this very good question, Ellie, today we have with us Dr. Helen DeCruz, who is an expert on the philosophy of religion and the philosophy of science fiction. Dr. DeCruz has written multiple articles about the relationship between philosophy and science fiction. Most recently, she co-edited a book entitled Philosophy Through Science Fiction Stories, Exploring the Boundaries of the Possible. Hi, Helen. Uh, welcome to Overthink. It's great to have you welcome. here. Nice to meet you, David and Ali. Helen, why do you think science fiction is important for philosophy? And how did you get interested in the relationship between these two fields? I think that, in a sense, people who will never open a philosophy book have engaged with philosophical questions through science fiction. Mm -hmm. I think almost everybody has at some point seen a science fiction movie or series, and these are always surprisingly philosophical. And these are not just for a small niche audience, like these are big blockbuster movies like Inception. So you have René Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher, who starts with this question about how do I know that I'm not dreaming? How do I know that I am actually sitting in my study, in my uh, robes, writing and thinking, and not lying in bed naked, apparently, <laughs> slept, slept in the nude? I love that detail. <laughs> it's a lovely detail. And he uses that as a starting point to get ever more skeptical, like, how do I know that I'm not being deceived by my senses? How do I know that I'm not being deceived by an evil demon who wants Mm -hmm. to trick me. And in a sense, even if you've never read Descartes, you will have thought about these issues when you have watched a movie like Inception, because I don't want to spoiler it, but (laughs) you you walk out of the theater thinking, what just happened? Is he dreaming or isn't he? And that Mm -hmm. sort of questions is not really just for philosophers. Like everybody has these questions because philosophy is born in this sense of wonderment about everyday things. Uh, So it's not just something only academics do or 
only people who went to college do. It's something everybody does. And science fiction is this sort of, because it's a pulpy genre, because it doesn't <laughs> pretend to be super sophisticated, although it is, science fiction gives us an entry into these questions that we all wrestle with. Mm -hmm. So would you say, Helen, that you came into philosophy through your pre-existing interest in science fiction, or did you come into science fiction through your interest in philosophy, or was it a mixture of the two? So about my interest in philosophy, I actually came to it quite late. I was raised in a working class family, not in a family of academics or even in mm. a family with lots of books. And I was very interested in the question of what makes us human? What are the sorts of things that separate us? And I know that in a biological sense, we are animals. Like I know, but at the same time, you know, we build cathedrals and we come up with theories and that has always fascinated me. And in fact, my major is art history. Mm. Uh, and the reason mm. it's art history is that I thought art is the way in which people think about these questions and in which they express their humanity most potently. And as I was doing the art uh, history major, and I did lots of philosophy courses then, and then I decided eventually to do a PhD in philosophy after I did my PhD in archaeology. So I came to it super late, but all this while I was very interested in science fiction, but I didn't think it was philosophical at the mm. time. I just thought mm. it was fun. Like it was, it was just fun puzzles to think about. And I did make the connection until just maybe less than 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. I had no idea that you also have a PhD in archaeology, Helen. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that is incredible. And I'm wondering too about how, did you take philosophy in high school? No, okay. I didn't, I didn't do philosophy in high school and I actually just had no philosophical background, like for the yeah. longest time. The only difference was that in high school, I got this sort of mega crush on anything that had to do with the Italian Renaissance. <laughs> I had no idea why, but I just got super into it. And I even, you know, used my savings to go to Florence and to Whoa. Rome. Yeah. And I, I got so into it. I read uh, Baldassare's Castiglione's uh, Book of the Courtier. And I mm -hmm. read Niccolo Machiavelli's Prince and, and a couple of other Renaissance philosophy books. So that was actually yeah. my intro to philosophy. <laughs> and so then you decided that you wanted to create a time machine so you could go back to the Renaissance, <laughs> which spawned the interest in science fiction and archaeology. <laughs> Not that archaeology is going to be the one that's creating the time machine, but we can, you know, go back to previous times, perhaps with one. But the reason I ask about the high school education is because, you know, I know you're from Belgium, so I wasn't sure if it was perhaps different there, but in the U.S., almost no high school students have philosophy classes available to them. And so, you know, one thing I think is really important about what you're describing as the philosophical value of science fiction is that it's often only through science fiction films and stories and novels that teenagers are having really any access to what we would traditionally think of as philosophical questions, unless they're religious, because there's also, you know, a lot of philosophy baked into religion in the U.S. today. So I, I think... You know, the way that a lot of American teenagers are thinking about these bigger questions in life <laughs> is through science fiction, not to mention, of course, the many adults for whom science fiction provides a way of thinking about philosophical questions. 
It's interesting you mentioned religion. So I do think that indeed religions have some overlap with science fiction and with philosophy. But uh, it seems to me like when, particularly when you're part of an organized religion, you want to be orthodox, right? You don't want to sort of say weird things or maybe, <laughs> I don't know, this could be, this could be a concern. And whereas I think it's still a virtue of philosophy that we can just discuss things in a sort of free and open-minded spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same for science fiction. Because in science fiction, you don't need to argue for anything. You can just give the idea like, what if? Mm-hmm. And then mm. you can let people decide. Yeah, there is no starting dogma, what, it seems. There's no starting dogma. And you can explore a whole range of ideas. So I'm only now reading, and this book has been suggested to me for the longest time by all sorts of enthusiastic mm. philosophers, is <laughs> Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Yeah. It's a super interesting novel. Uh, I hadn't read it before. I thought I did, uh, but mm. but I hadn't. And it basically tries to see, like, if we had a realistic utopia, a utopia that doesn't have saints, but actual human beings who are flawed, what would the utopia look like? What would it take to have such a society? That's the starting point of the story. And I find it very interesting as a thought experiment, because can you make it work in fiction? Does it sound believable in fiction? And if it does, that maybe says something about whether utopia is possible. That's so interesting. I, too, have never read that book. So you're now making me want to read it. But it strikes me that, you know, of course, there is such a long line of philosophers who've written stories about utopia as well, including Plato in The Republic and, you know, sort of imagining that's a stage dialogue of philosophers talking about what a utopia would look like and imagining it rather than just throwing us into to that potential society. But I wonder on the basis of that, how we might distinguish philosophy from science fiction, because a lot of people think that what separates the two is storytelling, right? Fiction tells stories and philosophy does not. Philosophy gives, you know, the best possible, most realistic, justified account of the way that the world currently is and the way that it should be. Um, But in your work on the two, you really suggest that philosophy is more linked to storytelling than it seems. So we've got fiction writers who invent fictional universes on the one hand, but philosophers often use what are known as thought experiments to tell stories. And so I'm wondering what you think about this distinction between the two. How do philosophers' stories differ from the stories of science fiction? This is such a cool question. I was just thinking about it recently because I'm teaching now philosophy of mind to neuroscientists. And one of the Mm. decisions I made was to take all what are called less commonly taught philosophies. So that's sort of shorthand for non-Western, but non-Western is problematic because uh, it centers Western. So anyway... Mm -hmm. That sort of philosophy, very often, even though the arguments can be very rigorous and you can really distill a rigorous argument out of it, the storytelling is very rich. So the the way in which things are set up is less argumentative than a lot of Western philosophy is. So, for example, if you take the Schwanzer, uh, which is uh, mm-hmm. a warring state, so about 4th century BCE, a collection of sayings, yeah, by the Chinese philosopher Zhuangzi. He uses all these stories about 
all sorts of weird things, like, you know, birds that turn into fish or fish that mm-hmm. turn into birds. And I'll just illustrate for the audience an example of a story. So in this story, you have uh, Zhuangzi sitting and fishing, and then you have some officials and they come to him and they say, the king of Chu would like you to become uh, their primary advisor. And he doesn't even turn around, he continues to fish. And there is this box, a jeweled box. And in this jeweled box, there is a carcass of a dead uh, turtle. And then he said, would you rather be <laughs> Not the where dead- I thought this was going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you rather be the dead turtle or would you be an actual living turtle who happily splashes about in the water and drags its tail through the mud? And they say, I'd rather be the living turtle. And he says, well, similarly, I would rather drag my tail to the mud. Just go away. And that story Mm. is to illustrate that doing the thing that is most prestigious is not always the thing that's going to make you happy. And actually, he would just rather be obscure and happily fish along rather than to go to this very high pressure, high prestige position. So there is, there is an argument there, but it is also a story. Like, yeah, you didn't mm-hmm. know, like, I didn't know where this was going either when I was yeah. reading this the first time around. So I think there is a lot of continuity between philosophy and fiction. Indeed, it is the case that contemporary philosophers will often use like mini stories, mm-hmm. thought experiments to imagine all sorts of scenarios and to help you think like you as the audience. And that's the nice thing about thought experiments. They're so open-ended. You can think along and think, what do I, what do I think about that? So here's one that every philosophy professor will use at some mm-hmm. point. It's Nozick's experience machine, Robert yes. Nozick's experience machine. Yep. I'll just briefly <laughs> explain it. So what is the thought experiment? Imagine you could step into a machine and be plugged into the machine and all of a sudden everything you ever wanted will come true. Suppose you wanted to be a world famous singer, it's going to happen, or a world famous writer, or you would have to want to have certain friends or romantic attachments. It's all going to happen. And moreover, you wouldn't know that it isn't real. You would Mm -hmm. think it's all happening. However, in reality, you're hooked up at a machine nutrients are being passed uh, to you through tubes and your brain is being stimulated by the machine. Do you want to step into the machine? Here's something weird that's happening. So Nozick said originally, people wouldn't want to go into this machine. And that just proves, he says, that people have other projects and desires Mm -hmm. than just pleasure. You want more in life than just every wish come true. You want to do something with the world. You also, moreover, just want to be around real people. So there's certain things we want that you can't get out of pleasure. And that's a criticism against the hedonistic theories of ethics that say that ethics should maximize pleasure. But the interesting thing is that recently my colleagues have been finding that many more students are saying, yeah, hook me up. Oh, really? Hook, Hook me up to the machine like a friend of mine. 90% 90% of the students said, yeah, hook I'm me up. Step into the <laughs> what does that mean? Do you think that's because they're already living digital lives so much more than before anyway? I think it has to do with the kind of alienation that pandemic life has brought about. And also huh. just people have this sense of dread, like the world's going down the drain, which is kind of interesting. Like, is that objectively a fact? There's surely we have challenges, but it's kind of part of the zeitgeist, you'd almost say. (laughs) So you see, in that sort of thought experiment, you can 
think about it and you can give your own answer and then that will figure into how you respond to the rest of the argument. Yeah, and that's such a good example here in connection to science fiction because, of course, the movie The Matrix gives yeah. us almost a cinematic rendition of this thought experiment where people get plugged into a machine, The Matrix, and yet the movie turns on the idea that somehow, for some reason, people wake up occasionally from this machine. So there is something about the human being that resists the irreal and reaches out for the real world. But I think you're right that there are all these areas of overlap, right, between philosophy and science fiction. And one of the arguments that you make, uh, especially in your 2015 article entitled The Epistemic Value of Speculative Fiction, is that even though there are these overlaps between science fiction stories and the thought experiments that philosophers use to make philosophical points or test our intuitions about the world, there's still a fundamental difference between them in terms of the cognitive mechanisms that we use to deal with those different stories. So our brains don't really process a science fiction narrative in the same way as a philosophical thought experiment. I would like you to walk us through this argument. One thing to keep in mind about cognition is the more detail we have and the more detail that we can latch onto, the less we are reliant on all sorts of heuristics and biases. So if you have very little detail and it goes very quick, then you will sort of default to all sorts of ideas that you already had. And it makes sense because there's not much else to be guiding your thinking. But if you have a detailed situation, then you might think, come to different conclusions. So fiction writers have known this for a long time. So Elizabeth Gaskell, for example, was a British author. So this is not a science fiction author, but she was a British author at the turn of the 19th century. And she was interested in poor people and their lives. Now, the problem was that most of the audience was not interested. Most of the people who read novels for fun, they weren't poor. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, she started talking about them, the way that you would think about rich people would commonly read in novels, like, for example, that they would have divorces and they would lose a child to illness. And that way, the reader started to see poorer segments of society in a more human light. And you have the same thing with abolitionist literature and with, you know, literature by Charles Dickens and so on. And in, in fact, also with science fiction. So it does change uh, the sorts of details are relevant. In fact, we see this even at the neural level. So that richness of detail influences how we mentally travel to different worlds. If you have a more rich environment with more detail, then your engagement with it, then the way the scenarios that you build are going to be to be different. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I think that it's good to have detail in, in your philosophy. Even if you write a philosophical article, I think the details in a thought experiment genuinely matter. Yeah. Is the idea then that philosophical thought experiments, just by their very nature, cannot have as much detail about the world that they are creating than a science fiction novel where an author can really paint a picture 
of an alternative universe, um, the moral lives of the characters in it, and that that richness of detail is what allows the reader to essentially transport themselves into another world. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, David, I was thinking about how, Helen, in your work, you've written about the idea of transportation, where fiction can transport you to another world. So just wanted to bring that word in the mix, because, David, you mentioned it in its verb form. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, transportation is this idea that you can be transported into a different world. And I think very rarely in philosophy you do feel transported particularly the sort of narrative philosophy by people like Nietzsche. So I know that many non-philosophers read Nietzsche and they really get a lot out of it because that is almost, and it is actually in many cases, just fiction. So you get those details and you get this alternative world. You for a moment get transported away from your everyday worries and concerns and you get transported into this other world. And there is a way in which Thought experiments are usually super brief, and so there is just not the amount of detail to do that. And it also strikes me that there's perhaps less of an engagement of the actual emotions in a learning experience in philosophy than there might be with science fiction. So I'm thinking about Paulo Freire's idea of the kind of banking model of education that dominates today and this idea that we as learning subjects are just sort of deposit boxes for information. (laughs) And so what do I want? I just want the philosopher to cut to the chase. I want them to get to the point. I want to know the bottom line of the argument. For Freire, this is totally the wrong way to think about education because actually education involves a much more dialogical process where you're engaged in your full body, you're engaged in dialogue with others, right? And so even though fiction, of course, involves sitting alone in a room (laughs) quietly and reading something, um, there's still, I think, maybe a sense whereby it's enlisting more parts of ourselves than perhaps a philosophical thought experiment might And would you say that emotions is maybe part of what distinguishes science fiction from philosophical thought experiments? I think that great science fiction indeed can transport us emotionally to different worlds and engages us in a way with certain philosophical ideas at an emotional level. So, for example, you have Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, uh, which is a very interesting novel. It explores ideas about gender and sexuality. And it does that in a way that sort of prefigures a lot of later debates. So she Mm. has these people who are not gendered, so they are genderless, but they will at certain points assume a male or female body, sexual characteristics, Mm -hmm. and then they will have sex. And it's interesting that you have an anthropologist and he comes to this planet. He comes into this relationship with somebody on the planet and they have this long trek on the ice desert. And it's, it's a very romantic moment. So it gives you a sort of sense about like, how would we organize society if genuinely there was no gender, if you still had sexual characteristics, but even those weren't fixed at a sort of emotional level that is hard to get in just a philosophical argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it seems like we have identified two differences between science fiction narratives and maybe philosophical thought experiments, one being the amount of detail that they carry within them, 
And then secondly, their appeal to the emotions with science fiction sort of taking the crown on that one. In your research, you also allude to a third feature, which is essentially the radicality of the narratives themselves. Because you point out that not all forms of transportation are the same. And you know that there is, in fact, a trade-off between mental simulations that turn on the near future versus mental simulations that throw us into a completely unknown world in which even the laws of basic logic and basic physics no longer hold, right? So in science fiction, we're actually more likely to get a very different metaphysics, a very different kind of universe. Mm. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts a little bit about this difference that you draw between narratives that take us to the near future versus those that take us, um, you know, to infinity and beyond. To a genderless society. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So one of the things cognitive scientists have found is that we are generally better at prospecting things that come nearer in the future and that are more similar to current situations. Like the more distant something is, the more different it is from our lives now, the more difficulties we have to actually think about what we would completely do or how we would evaluate the situation. And for philosophy, it's important to know, you know, how we evaluate things. And so if you use a thought experiment because of its brevity, the best thought experiments don't in fact like change a whole lot. Or if they do, they do it in such a way like Nozick's um, experience machine that you have this one fact and it sort of dominates Mm -hmm. everything. But in science fiction, you can do, because of the length of it, you can do both. So you can have that level of detail, but you can also have something that is very unfamiliar and very far away. And you can really think about that and, and see what would happen. Whereas in philosophy, if you have such thought experiments, it's not always entirely clear what would happen. So, for example, you have the thought experiment, the swap man thought experiment, I think this is Davidson's, <laughs> or uh, Ruth Millikan actually came up with this thought experiment first. And it's the following. Oh, I don't think I know it. <laughs> swamp man. Oh my God, Swamp man. <laughs> Imagine there is a swamp and lightning hits the swamp. And for whatever reason... The exact duplicate of you arises, like the exact molecules and atoms and everything is exactly Ellie, everything. Even the neural connections. Would that person be you? And also, would that person have thoughts? Like, could you say that a person who has no history and who would just like arise like that, bam, Mm -hmm. would that person have thoughts or not? And so Milliken actually thinks that this person would not have thoughts. She thinks that you need to have a history. What? Yes. Hmm. Even though the ha- their history would be kind of programmed in. <laughs> but there's no programming. So it's like there's this amazing cosmic coincidence of lightning striking a swamp. Okay. So the memory wouldn't be like lodged somewhere. You would have the same neurons, but the memory itself. Maybe there are the same sorts of connections that make up memories like yours. And to me, mm. the intuitions here are very unclear. And to many other people too. Mm-hmm. So people have debated these swamp man cases. And I think <laughs> I think one of the reasons is that it's so weird. Like there's so <laughs> many weird elements to thinking, it. Another hot take on the swamp man case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> swamp man debate rages on. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> Sounds like the title of an Onion article about our profession. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love it, though. I mean, it's it shows you, like, how interesting, actually, philosophy can be. And I think that's sort of what is so compelling about your work on science fiction, too, is just to show that so much of what we think of as interesting about science fiction is actually philosophical. And maybe if more people realize that, they would realize, like, how wonderful and interesting philosophy is. Um, So I want to ask you, as we start to wrap up here, how you think about the role of wonder. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview that philosophy begins in wonder, which of course is a quote that comes originally from Plato's dialogues and then becomes famous with Aristotle. And in what sense does science fiction evoke wonder? And why do you think that this is important for human thinking? The history of wonder in Western philosophy is very interesting. It starts out indeed with Plato in the Theaetetus, where, you know, one of the interlocutors of Socrates is completely thrown off and perplexed. And then uh, he says, I I don't know how to even deal with all these questions that you throw up, Socrates. And Socrates says, You're wondering because you are a philosopher and philosophy begins in wonder. So that's Mm. that tip. Wonder is a philosophy-specific emotion. However, it is interesting to see that when we reach Aristotle, that he has a different take. His take is that wonder is something that is given to everybody, not just philosophers. When people looked at the stars and wondered about everyday things in their environment, that is when they begin to wonder. Even though Aristotle was uh, sort of an elite who who was misogynistic, etc., he still believed that the emotion of wonder is given to all of us and that everybody wonders at, at some point. But even though the emotion of wonder is an important one, it is very easy to get caught up with everyday life concerns. Lots of us have to work very hard, have all sorts of like drudgery and and, and Mm -hmm. day-to-day. Some of our jobs are not intellectually engaging. And so within that, you can nevertheless stimulate your sense of wonder by reading, for instance, science fiction or watching a science fiction show or movie. You get that sense of like, what if things were different? And they could be different. And that's important in so many respects. It's important Uh, for us to imagine different political futures. And that's why Mm -hmm. science fiction uh, is often political. It's different Mm -hmm. for us to imagine like how our relationships with other people could be different or how we could be doing things differently. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that is wonderful. (laughs) Um, It indeed is. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so much to think about. So amazing, Helen. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Helen, this has been incredible. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, The wisdom that begins in wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Enjoying this episode? Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also connect with us and other listeners on Facebook and Instagram. Ellie, that was a lot of food for thought. What do you think? It was so great. I I loved hearing Helen's thoughts as well as about her background. I mean, it's fascinating to hear that she has a background in archaeology, an archaeologist doing philosophy, doing sci-fi. Yes. Uh, You know, and I now wonder whether there is a connection between those things insofar as they converge Hmm. at finding alternative 
worlds, right? In archaeology, you go digging for other worlds from the past. And hmm. in sci-fi, you go digging or exploring for alternative worlds in the future. So it's just a different temporal orientation, arguably. And also, a lot of science fiction draws on archaeological research into past societies, right? So you have science fiction that's inspired by the heyday of the Mayans or the Aztecs mm -hmm. or the heyday of, you know, ancient Islam or ancient Greece. One of the things that struck me is really related here, which is Helen's claim that one of the things science fiction enables is a kind of world building that really allows us to envision things differently. And it makes sense that humans would draw on resources from fully developed uh, but now extinct societies in order to build those kinds of worlds. You know, why not draw on the history of humans in order to imagine <laughs> a, a potential future of humans and or non-humans. Yeah, why not take a step back in order to take a step forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing I found really compelling is that she points out that this has a psychological function to it. When a world is really built out in a substantial way, it allows us to overcome our cognitive bias against being able to envision things in the far future. So I, I really was struck by her claim that we can grasp things that are in the near future much better than we can grasp things in the far future. I can grasp my next deadline for a paper a lot better than I can grasp having tenure <laughs> <laughs> or not having tenure. Oh, God. Uh -huh. um, knock on wood. But I think what she suggests is that that cognitive bias against being able to envision the far future is in some ways potentially overcome by the intensely imaginative exercises that science fiction engages us in by virtue of its world building. Yeah, and not just imaginative, but fundamentally immersive, because what that world building allows a science fiction writer to do is add enough detail that the reader feels like they are inside of that world rather than pondering mm. it from a distance, right? So there is here a difference yeah. between thinking about a world versus really feeling like you are in it, like you are mm -hmm. uh, one of its characters. And our cognition, our way of thinking when we are immersed in an alternative world might follow different pathways than the kind of mental operations we might perform or the thoughts and conclusions we might draw when we're just in our everyday world that we're habituated into. And in thinking about just the difference between philosophy and its thought experiments and science fiction with its much more elaborate world building is her point that in philosophy, we sometimes create thought experiments by just tweaking a little part of the world, right? Like imagine if yeah. this little piece of the puzzle were a little different, what would follow? Whereas mm -hmm. in science fiction, we are given a much more demanding task, which is imagine that the entire puzzle follows a different logic. Um, yeah. And this is, I think, where the strength of sci-fi stories really kicks in. Absolutely. Well, with that, I'm going to immerse myself in The Matrix 4. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe... And meanwhile, you should rewatch Yes, iRobot. I was going to say, I'll, I'll go into iRobot and maybe I'll come out on the other end with a different view about where on the taste scale you fall. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
You can find us at overthinkpodcast.com, where you can email us with questions, feedback, or even requests for life advice. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at overthink underscore pod. Thanks to Samuel P.K. Smith for the original music and Trevor Ames for our logo. And to our listeners, thanks so much for overthinking with us.